This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Alan Garber. I'm the director of the Center for Health Policy at the Friedman Spogli Institute. And it's my great honor and pleasure to introduce our luncheon speaker, Mike Osterholm. Mike is uh, somebody who is impressive even by the standards of this august group. Uh, and somebody uh, who has accomplished so much, it's a little bit hard to summarize in, in brief terms. But I have to start out by saying, after a morning of doom and gloom, you probably don't feel quite ready to think about pandemic influenza, but you, you couldn't imagine a more affable messenger for this rather distressing message. But he also has some very, uh, I think, positive things to say about actions that might be taken. Mike has a uh, very distinguished career, or perhaps I should use the plural, career. Uh, he is, he, he uh, was for about a quarter of a century uh, in the Minnesota Department of Health, and he has subsequently had a huge impact in academia and as an advisor to government and private foundations and all kinds of other organizations at, at many, many levels. He's a man who, who uh, characterizes the best of what we hope to accomplish in an organization like FSI, someone who has great depth in academic and research achievement, 300 articles for those who care to keep count, but at the same time has had a huge impact at the policy level and is uh, in many respects the go-to person when it comes to issues like biodefense, and like preparation for outbreaks of emerging infections and for epidemic and pandemic infectious disease, a topic uh, that is uh, increasingly uh, concerning, as you all know. In fact, uh, I didn't talk to Mike about this beforehand, but about 18 months ago, uh, Mike Levitt, uh, this is right after he had been appointed Secretary of HH HHS, came out here. Uh, and he had breakfast with a number of people at the medical school, and he said the one thing that kept him awake at night was not a bioterrorist uh, event, and, and it was not Medicare, which I thought he should have been pretty worried about, uh, but it, it was about the possibility of pandemic influenza, and he had read the, uh, the book The Great Influenza and a couple of other books about the horrible thing that had happened in 1918, and as all the experts tell us, it's only a matter of time till something like that happens again. Well, there's no better person to deliver the message uh, with authority, and also I think you'll find um, in a way that's very accessible and interesting than Mike Osterholm. Uh, I should add, by the way, that he was, advisory, he was an advisor to Secretary Tommy Thompson and his advisor to Secretary Levitt. He's a member of the Institute of Medicine and very active in, in their activities. And um, he's on the national, uh, I can't really say it, but the Advisory Committee on Biodefense or something like that, and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I, even in this group, he probably um, has the edge in terms of frequent flyer miles, and he puts them to very good use. Mike, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Alan, for that introduction, and uh, to Chip and to all the distinguished guests, thank you for allowing me to be here with you here today. I must say that this is one of those crowds that I really resonate with. I was one of those individuals that had that mistaken split identity in college. I had a double major in biology and political science, and most people thought that I was just misguided, confused, or whatever, and I always tried to impress upon them, no, there was a tremendous linkage between the issue, world of political science and biology. And today, being here, I saw that firsthand. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Just one editorial comment. I would have very easily given up my time if we could have had that first session this morning go on a couple more hours. That was, I think, one of the single most impressive sessions I've ever attended in my life. Thank you very much. Well, I'm here, though, today to um, create a bit of a transition for you in terms of uh, what we're going to be talking about. Um, at the outset, let me just say that uh, I will try to take the words spoken earlier today and try to weave them into this presentation. 
And I thought Professor Pate Cornell's discussion of risk was simply outstanding, too. As an epidemiologist who spends his whole life trying to translate numbers and risk into policy and understand messages, I thought that was very helpful. Let me uh, try to relate a message to you right at the outset at the risk of stating what might appear to be too much uh, emphasis on a given fact. And that is, um, I had an, an interesting experience. On 9-11 of 2000, one year to the day before 9-11, I published a book called Living Terrors, What American Needs to Notify the Coming Bioterrorist Catastrophe. Spent the morning doing the TV talk shows, you, you know, Good Morning America, etc. In that book, I was directing it primarily at the risk of a bioterrorism event, but I talked about well, the threats before this country. And in that book, I laid out the fact that the World Trade Center Tower would stay one of the number one targets. In fact, I used it often in many of my talks. And I talked at some length about the al-Qaeda and actually said I didn't think they would use bioterrorism agents. They were probably going to use bombs, uh, that kind of thing. Now, if you had asked me as a scientist between 9-11 of 2000 and 9-11 of 2001, what the risk of that happening was, you know, I couldn't have given you a numerical risk with any certainty whatsoever, but I could have taken exactly the kind of analysis you saw up here for earthquakes and said, oh, probably one in 10,000 or something, but you've got to be aware of it and you've got to be concerned about it. Well, we know what the real risk was. It was one. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you today that what I'm going to talk about the risk is one. It is going to happen. It is not optional. It's not discretional. What I can't tell you is exactly how it's going to unfold. What I can't tell you is how prepared we'll be, because it will depend upon when it happens and what we finally decide to do about it. But it is going to happen. So while all the events we heard about today, earlier today, may or may not happen, clearly if they do, they're catastrophic. This is going to happen. The issue is, what will it mean when it happens? Now, I, uh, last count, I had about 9,500 slides in my repertoire of slides uh, that any academician has to have to be credible. And I have to tell you, if I had to get rid of all the other slides, this is the one single slide that I would keep, because it tells the story of where we are today in this world better than any other. What you see on the bottom is the last 150 years. On the left y-axis, you see the days to circumnavigate the globe. On the right y-axis, uh, you see the population in billions of the world. Well, if you look at that, uh, we've come a long ways from 150 years ago when fast sailing ships took us around the world in a little over a year to the advent of the jet plane and the ability to get around the world in a little over a day. Now, what that slide doesn't tell you, though, which is critical, is that line from 1950 to now really isn't flat at all. It is a line that is more dynamic than everything before it in the sense of what goes around the world. Today, we live in a global just-in-time economy where many of the critical products and services that we use every day in this country come from some distant country. Just at the outset, how many of you are aware of the fact that 80% of the drugs you're using right now in this country are coming from an offshore location? 80%. When you look at that piece of it and you look at the amount of travel that occurs, last year 1.4 billion people crossed an international border either by plane, by boat, by four-wheeled vehicle, by bus, whatever, by foot. We now have this mobile society. This is the overlay that any pandemic catastrophe will occur upon. Then if you look at world population, I regret I was in an earlier session this morning. I could not attend the energy session. Uh, I would have loved to have attended that one with the water issues because when you look at what we're doing to planet Earth right now, you know, how much longer can we keep this up when you look at that line? Today, 6.5 billion people on the face of the earth, one out of every nine people who's ever lived is on the face of the earth today. We're stretching resources dramatically. But with that, we also need food. And I don't know if it was intended as such, but the fact that we had chicken for lunch today, it's interesting to note that, in fact, the single most efficient conversion of protein to food is such, in time and in amount, is poultry. And so today, we have seen an explosion of poultry around the world, which plays into this issue of pandemic influenza, which I'll come back to in a moment. Now, to understand influenza pandemics, first realize that they have occurred dating back to Hippocrates. There have been 10 pandemics in the last 300 years. Pandemics are recurring events. Now, you're going to hear me talk about 1918 today, not because it's the scariest and horriest one out there. It's not. People often think that. That's just our modern history we know. In 1516, if there's any historians in the room, they know about this, a major pandemic swept from Asia across Europe. It literally swept across Europe in six weeks at a time when, as we know, primary transportation was on foot, on horseback, or ox cart. 
Rome, 9,000 of the 81,000 residents Rome died in one week. Many Spanish cities were considered totally depopulated. We've had many severe influenza pandemics in the past. Some are severe, some are not so severe, and some are so mild as to almost be missed. Human influenza pandemics occur when a novel influenza strain emerges from the avian population has the following features. One, it can be readily transmitted between humans. What we're saying here is the virus has naturally resided for probably 100 million years in wild aquatic birds. It's a GI-infected agent in the birds, and typically, until recently, we didn't think ever caused any morbidity. It's only when that virus makes its way out of that population and genetically changes so that it's capable of not only infecting humans, but humans transmit it between each other. And those are big genetic steps that have to be taken, but they happen. They happen every so often. It has to be genetically unique meaning that it can't be a similar influenza strain, or we have protection out there. Now, I've got to tell you that that is, in fact, something we struggle with every year as we're trying to match up the current seasonal influenza vaccine with the strains that are circulating for this year, knowing we're only going to be six to eight to ten months behind. And some years we don't get very good efficacy in our vaccine because we're missing the, even though they're literally first cousins of the strain the year before, the vaccine still doesn't work as well because they're not that close. Now imagine a totally different virus coming into the picture for which we have no residual protection. And then finally, increased virulence. We forget the seasonal flu, which is the remnants of the previous pandemic, each year take anywhere from 25 to 50,000 lives in this country. Grant you, most of those are people who are immune compromised, older, people who have underlying health conditions, but that happens every year. I know my 72-year-old uncle died this past February from influenza. What we're talking about is one that actually comes in with a vengeance, one that is not the seasonal flu situation that's part of the pandemic. Throughout history, influenza pandemics have differed in terms of season of onset. Of the last 10 pandemics, they've started in all four seasons. So unlike seasonal flu, you can't count on it's going to wait until winter. It could start in the middle of the summer. The actual mortality rates have varied dramatically. The 1957 and 68 pandemics, which were mild by everyone's standards, are very different than the pandemics of 1918, even 19, or 1890, and the one I mentioned, 1560. And the problem with it is they come in waves. One of the, if there is a silver lining to many of the terrorist events, that when they occur, they happen, and we go into recovery phase within minutes, meaning it blows up, it's done. That's a horrible thing, but it is tremendously advantageous to the response. Imagine something that unfolds in slow motion for 18 months, and it gets really bad, and it gets a little better. Then it gets really bad, and it gets a little better. Then it gets really bad. And we never know which one of these waves, as influenza pandemics have done in the past, is going to be the really bad one, or will it be a bad one? Six to eight weeks of illness. Six to 12 weeks, no illness, or very limited. Six to 12 weeks of more illness. As a public policy person, when do you blow your wad? because you're going to have one shot at this probably from the resources we can stockpile. And we won't restock in between pandemic issues because, as I'll point out later, it's going to have tremendous implications on our economy. I don't have a clue how to advise the leaders of this country when to blow your wad on this one. What if it's like the 1890 pandemic where it was the third wave 16 months into the pandemic that was the most severe? What if it was 1918 when it was six months into the second wave of the pandemic that was most severe? What if it's like 1957 and 1968 when it was the first wave that was most severe? So this is going to be a challenge for us. Now this cartoon is meant to be a layperson's view of the world of influenza. To give you a sense of what we're talking about, on that far left side you see the reservoir for influenza viruses has been naturally over all of time wild aquatic birds. Now there is, as you'll see, 16 H's and 9 N's or hemagglutinins and neuraminidases, two of basically the antigens of the virus or parts of the virus that we characterize these virus by. Just let me point out to you that an N and an H is kind of like being in Minnesota and being a Peterson or basically a Johnson because it's, well, it may define you within the tribe. It doesn't tell you who you really are yet. And we have many, many changes within an H3N2 or an H5N1, but basically they're general families. What we've worried about in past is when that virus moves out of what has been wild aquatic birds into domestic birds or some other animal species we've only in modern history think is domestic birds. When that virus moves into the domestic birds, it may cause a disease called low path influenza, which is actually a disease that is not 
the one we worry about per se. It can be not good for chickens, but it's not one that really is of concern to humans. What we worry about is when a high path virus, which is genetically different, but now has that increased ability to cause disease and, and so forth, continues to move right. But before I do that, let me just drop down. It's also possible for these viruses from that bird population to infect other mammal species. And I should have said at the outset, which I didn't, I do have one disclosure I have to make that uh, I should have made at the beginning. I know less about influenza today than I did 10 years ago. And so uh, many of the facts that I thought were true, as many of my colleagues did, frankly, we're finding aren't true, or at least we can't be so confident in them anymore. And this is one of those facts right here, is we used to think we had this night tidy way that influenza virus became the next pandemic strain. Now we see it in animals. We didn't know cats were important until they fed dead H5N1 carcasses from chickens to the Bengal tigers in the Bangkok Zoo and they all died. We didn't understand how important dogs were with this, to this until they were eating the dead carcasses of the chickens in Turkey in the outbreak we had there last winter. We now have at least 45 animal species that can be infected by H5N1. No evidence yet that they're sustaining it. But for all we know, ultimately, if this were to become the next human pandemic strain, it might not come through birds to us. Technically, it could come through another animal species. We don't have a clue. But what we worry about is it continuing to move down course. What you see is, in the middle there, the young uh, woman and her child, is the situation of what we call basically dead-end transmission, where there's nothing that happens beyond that case. And in the Midwest, where hogs also carry these viruses, I've worked up several such situations in the past, no other transmission. But what we also are concerned about is what is that upper left uh, uh, going up to the top, which where you see now is a line going up to the pigs. Basically, the pig situation is one that we worry about very much, in that that's a virus that now can infect a pig lung cell quite readily, and it turns out that pig lungs can also be receptors for human viruses at the same time they can be bird viruses. And a co-infection of two very different viruses in a pig lung may ultimately end up in what we call a reassortment event where the eight genes of each of those two viruses get mixed up and a third virus occurs. The influenza virus is one of the most sloppy, absolutely promiscuous viruses we know. When that reassortment events occurs, that is in a sense almost a dumbed down virus because in fact it's kind of a little human and a little bird and it goes on. That's how the 57 and 68 outbreaks occurred. But what we've now learned only in retrospect is that bottom set of lines that have occurred where it now goes down to the woman and it's now what we call one-off avian influenza transmission or virus adaptive. Where what now happens is the virus no longer is required to change genetically by mixing with another virus, just enough changes in the virus over time. Just that mutational roulette table keeps playing and playing and playing, and finally one day it plays out enough so that it changes so that it matches up the human receptor cells to the point where even then humans can transmit it to other humans. So it's kind of about the birds up to that point, then after that it's no longer about the birds. We now know in retrospect that's how the 1918 virus actually occurred in the, becoming the pandemic strain. It went through adaption. And then of course you have the pandemic and then the virus ultimately will stick around and become the seasonal flu virus. The H3N2 virus we deal with today each season is the reminiscence of the 1968 pandemic. Now this slide is a perspective slide. This is meant to give you a sense of where we are today in the world with the uh, sense of pandemic. This really came home to me this past February. I did an hour-long session on this with Oprah. And as we all know, Oprah is the ultimate communicator to the world. She is amazing who she touches. Well, I got to tell you, the University of Minnesota was not all that happy with me the next day because I damn near brought down the email system for the entire university. And the emails that I got were amazing. Same ugly face, same message, same everything on there, and a whole lot of them came in and said, you are irresponsible, you are scary, you should be fired, and one even said I shouldn't be alive. Quiet, be quiet, unnecessary. A whole other set came in and said, you know what, you're just like everybody else. You're covering it up. Tell us the truth. We know we're all going to die. Just tell us how we're going to do it. And I'm sitting there going, wow, how can you have that kind of response from the same words? And it is because that's where people naturally want to go. If it's chicken little and it's not a problem, there's nothing you have to do about it. If it's we're all going to die, there's nothing you have to do about it. So those are the easy, convenient positions to be in. It's in the middle when the truth is there and there's much we can do about it, but we have to do it that I think is there. So today I'm here to hopefully share with you a sense of the truth as I see it. 
If you're confused about this, don't be surprised. Because I have to tell you, I've been dealing with public relations media events around infectious diseases for 30 years, and I've never seen a story more poorly covered by any media than I have the issue of avian influenza and what's happening now. Look no further than this set of articles. This is one of our nation's premier daily newspapers, the New York Times. Don McNeil is one of our nation's premier science writers, with an editor with science training. On Sunday, May 14th, Don published an article that says avian flu wanes in Asian nations at first hit hard. If you read that, you were convinced I was Chicken Little and that this was not a big problem. Unbeknownst to Don, we had a cluster of cases unfolding in Sumatra in Indonesia in which we had confirmed third-generation transmission from one group of humans to a second to a third. And there was great concern that this may be the start. Well, Don got wind of that on Wednesday and Thursday. He wrote another very prominently displayed article. Bird flu deaths in Indonesia raised concerns. If you read that, you thought the pandemic had begun. Two weeks later, he writes a story, human flu transfers may exceed reports, which negated just about everything he said in the first article. Now, if I'm using the New York Times as a hopefully a reliable source of my information and read these, I would be mentally whipsawed on this issue. The media has done a horrible task here, and I will point that out in a moment when I share a WHO report that just came out on this issue. Now, the WHO has issued two reports I want to highlight today. One, a report that came out uh, over a year ago, 10 Things You Must Know About Pandemic Influenza. As a very, very big fan of the WHO and realizing its worldwide importance, I also am a realist and know that to get a consensus among all the member nations is like trying to say your feet are in the freezer, your head's on the oven, on average your temperature's just right. So for the WHO to make any statements, remember it's basically a consensus document. And they said, influenza, pandemic influenza is different from avian influenza. I've already shared that with you. Influenza pandemics are recurring events. My line for the last two years has been, like earthquakes, hurricanes, and tsunamis, pandemics occur. They will occur. They're different than those in a moment, as I'll point out, but they occur. The world may be on the brink of another pandemic. Strong language for WHO. All countries will be affected. Widespread illness will occur. Medical supplies will be inadequate. This was always the most uncomfortable moment to walk into a, one of the world's major medical centers and tell them, you know what, your medical care here during a pandemic is not going to be any better than it was in 1918. And I believe that to be absolutely the case anywhere in the developed world. And I'll share with you in a moment why that is the case. Large number of deaths will occur. I think this will re redefine the concept of death as we know it. Economic and social disruption will be great. That's going to be tied into ultimately how we respond or can respond. Every country must be prepared, and the WHO will alert the world when the pandemic threat increases. I worry, as many of us, that that alarm is going to come like any smoke alarm only after the fire has already gotten a good start. Now, here's an example that I'm talking about with the media again. Two years ago, I was one of those that was being drubbed in the media because I was suggesting, for reasons based on the virus and what we were seeing, that this could be another 1918-like pandemic if H5N1 were to emerge. And of course, for those said, no, 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 it's more like a 1957, it's 7 million deaths worldwide, not your 180 million deaths worldwide. And the media went back and forth and back and forth in this. Last week, the WHO released this report, Influenza Research at the Human and Animal Interface, report of a WHO working group that was held on September 21st and 22nd in Geneva. It consisted of some of the world's best minds in influenza and people that I would all tell you are part of that in-the-middle kind of consensus. The following statement was made, should the virus improve its transmissibility by acquiring through reassortment event internal human genes and the lethality of the virus would be most likely to be reduced? However, should the virus improve its transmissibility through adaption as a wholly avian virus, then the present high lethality could be maintained during a pandemic. The current case fatality rate is 65% among patients. Not a 2.5% of a 1918 pandemic. 65%. Now, you do the math on that for the world where more than half the world would be infected with a 65% case fatality rate. You find me anything that matches that as a potential catastrophe anywhere in the world, and I will be educated today. Now, do I believe it'll stay like that? No, I think if it is really that, as we're seeing now, it'll probably be reduced very quickly because you're gonna die before you can transmit to too many people and the virus will likely attenuate. But to go from 65% down to 2.5%, which was 1918, would be a hell of a jump. So we'd probably be happy it went down to 10% or 20%. Nobody in the media picked this up, nobody. It was left totally undone except for two small media outlets. 
Another part of the report, use of pre-pandemic vaccines. In the absence of scientific answers to these questions, concerns were expressed that national policy decisions about which vaccines to stockpile may be premature. Despite the understandable desire of governments to invest now in some means of protecting their populations in the event of an influenza pandemic, we now have drug companies that are doing science by press release. We have 35 candidate H5N1 vaccines out there right now, and I'm telling you, the influenza virus H5N1 is like somebody taking a scatter gun and shooting it up against the wall and then doing it again and again. And each one of those little holes is another one of the viruses, all different than the other holes. Such that this report is saying we, we're, we're way too early to be making pre-pandemic vaccines. Our science doesn't allow us to get there yet. Yet it makes people feel good if countries buy a pre-pandemic vaccine, for which I'm telling you, you're buying the fire truck without an engine or tires. This has been a big issue. And again, a public is not aware of this. Many of our government leaders are not aware of this as countries embark upon buying pandemic vaccines, which, by the way, it's not a big problem, as I'll show you in a moment, because we don't have that much capacity to make them, so only a few countries could buy. Now, I'd like to add a couple additional things. Vaccine and antiviral drugs will have limited impact on the pandemic that occurs in the next several years. I'll explain why in a moment. I've already shared with you the WAVE concept. This is going to be a major, major issue to decide when to take what resources we do have and use them. Non-pharmaceutical interventions, those things that we like to tell people this may help, such as quarantine, infection control, social distancing, will have limited impact on the number of cases. Infection control, that concept in hospitals and healthcare facilities where basically we use masks, we use respirators, we use gloves, we use a lot of things to reduce transmission. It is actually one of the foundations of modern infectious disease public health. So it's not that the theory doesn't work, it's that there won't be any of those products. We will run out of them overnight. So that, in fact, that's why it's not going to work. The global just-in-time economy presents a unique state of vulnerability to a pandemic. I am not an economist. I have learned a lot over the past years about the global just-in-time supply chain, which I'll talk about. I will tell you the results of a meeting we had in Minneapolis this past February, where the companies there represented $4.5 trillion of annual revenues. We had some of the big hitters there. And in fact, I, we went into depth what the, the vulnerability and the capability of their supply chains are, and it is zip zero. You don't come today to Stanford to get an MBA or to Harvard and talk about how you're going to add 4% to the cost of the supply chain so that there might be some excess capacity. You're still talking about how to get another quarter percent out. And as such, we are incredibly vulnerable, as I'll show you in a moment. International governments will have limited resources to respond everywhere and to everything for 12 to 18 months. Mike Levitt has been out of the stump saying, we won't be out there when this happens. Everybody assumed this is kind of post-Katrina, cover your backside kind of language. It is not. Unlike every other event, a terrorist event, a natural disaster event, where the rest of the world can bring resources to help out, that won't happen. Because every village, every town, every city, every county, every state, every region, every country will be in the soup at the same time. When Katrina happened, our university sent 260 medical personnel to Louisiana for up to six months as part of the Medical Reserve Corps. That won't happen again. We're not going to have enough in Minnesota. So we have to understand now, if local ever was important, it's important now. What happens in Palo Alto is going to be probably more important than what happens in the entire Bay Area in terms of a pandemic. Business continuity planning is not optional. I'm a public health guy. What do I know about business? I can tell you right now, as goes business, will go our society. If we can't get these critical products and services that we count on, we're in trouble. Now, I know this may not be a popular concept in this location, but if we don't sell iPods, you know what? It's not a big deal. But if we can't get food, if we can't get heating oil, if we can't get medicines to our, pop our populations, we are in big trouble. Hope and despair are not strategies. That's a common, I think, uh, place to go is I hope it's not going to happen. Boy, if it does, we're in trouble. Again, we'll get through it, but just like every pandemic in our history, but it's ultimately going to be dependent upon how well we prepare and the leadership we have during that time. This book has been mentioned before, uh, John Berry's The Great Influenza. I'd urge any of you to read this book. Uh, John is a historian from Tulane who I believe has chronicled the 1918 pandemic as well as anyone could. And I'm afraid in the words of Yogi Berra, it could be a deja vu all over again. And I think it's well worth getting a sense of that. To give you a sense of what 1918 was like, this is a letter from Dr. Roy Grist, who was a physician at one of the military camps outside of Boston. He sent it to his good friend Bird, who his family found in Bird's effects after he died in the attic and published in the British Medical Journal in December 1979. Roy Grist. These men start with what appears to be an ordinary attack of La Grippe or influenza.
When brought to hospital, they rapidly developed the most vicious type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. A few hours later, you can begin, be sent, begin to see cyanosis extending from their ears and spreading all over the face until it's hard to distinguish the colored men from the white. It's only a matter of a few hours until death comes. It's horrible. One can stand to see one, two, or 20 men die, but to see these poor, those poor devils dropping like flies. We've been averaging about 100 deaths per day. Pneumonia means in about all cases death. We've lost an outrageous number of nurses and doctors. It takes special trains to carry away the dead. For several days, there were no coffins, and the bodies piled up something fierce. It beats any sight they'd ever had in France after a battle. An extra-long barracks has been vacated for the use of the morgue, and it would make any man sit up and take notice to walk down the long lines of dead soldiers, all dressed and laid out in double rows. Goodbye, old pal. God be with you till we meet again. Now, I often hear from people today saying, well, it won't be like that today. We have antibiotics. Well, first of all, we're not going to have antibiotics, and I'll make that point real clear right now. They'll be one of the first drugs to go, given the vulnerability of that supply chain. But the second piece of it is that won't make any difference. Today, when people die from seasonal flu, yes, it's true. Most of them, like my uncle, died from pneumonia 10 days after the onset of the influenza, and it was that secondary bacterial pneumonia that superimposed on the influenza infection. These people are dying in a few days at most, and they're actually dying from a very different illness. It's what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome. Or what it is is this virus is turning on one's own immune system against themselves. And in a sense, it's that over-exuberant immune response, which I'll show you in a moment, is what's killing them. Today, in our intensive care units of this country, we still don't do very well against somebody who has severe ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. The other piece of this is, note the numbers of nurses and doctors that were dying. Today, we live in a world where healthcare workers should have zero risk. We can't ever even imagine expected losses like they do in the military. It will happen. Finally, they ran out of caskets. Deja vu all over again, as I'll share with you in a minute, we won't have caskets during a pandemic. To get a sense of what this is like, this, these are actual data from Boston. They give you the age distribution of deaths from influenza and pneumonia in Boston for the historic data, the top graph from 1912 to 1916 for September, October, and November. You can't see it on the bottom. You see 0 to 9, 10 to 19, 20 to 29, 30 to 39, 40 to 49, 50 to 59, and 60 to 69. The rates of death are per 100,000 population. On the top graph, what you see is kids died at the rate of about 300 per 100,000 as a historical overlay of what happened. It then drops down quickly by age 5, 6, or 7 to the point of where it's hard to measure right up until you get to the early 40s, and then it increases such that you're at about 500 per 100,000 by the time in that historic data pre-antibiotics that you hit age 70. Along comes 1918 pandemic flu in just the two months of September and October. What you see now are rates not 100, 200, but 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 5,700. Young kids had a major increase, yes, from 300 to 3,000, a tenfold increase rate of deaths. But look what happened to normal, healthy adults. They went from almost not measurable to almost 6% of the residents in Boston died during those two months from pandemic influenza. Now, notice how it drops down for the older population. We believe today, and this is a very simplistic explanation for a largely a non-medical group, that it was this over-exuberant immune response and that, in fact, those most likely to have that over-exuberant immune response are those who have the most capable and competent immune systems, i.e., those 18 to 35. So that, in fact, it's not the immune compromise that didn't, weren't infected. They were infected and they did die, but it was the highest risk was being there. The single rig biggest rate uh, or highest rate of deaths we saw were in pregnant women. In a study of 10 different cohorts of pregnant women in four different continents, the median death rate was about 55%. Pregnancy is by far the most precarious time in a healthy adult's life. There's part of you saying, get rid of this thing. It's not supposed to be there. It's not all me. And there's another part of your immune system that's regulated to say, save this at all costs. It's the most precious cargo you'll ever carry. When that virus got in the middle of that thing, it was really bad. Again, another piece of evidence on the immunologic component to this virus. So here we are today, H5N1. It's hard to keep this slide updated. 258 laboratory confirmed cases, including 153 deaths. One of the very striking things about this now is there are now sera on many blood samples, on many, many thousands of contacts, family members, co-workers, people in the same village, people who worked in the same market areas. And the bottom line message is today we're not missing lots of mild asymptomatic or even just relatively mild illnesses. The case mortality rate really is what we see. 
which we believe there's probably a genetic component today to who's likely to get that lock and key to work so that the virus gets in. But once it gets in, we don't have any evidence it'll be any different in terms of your outcome. So that, in fact, that's the part where the WHO has talked about why this could be so bad. Now, note that the primary activity has remained in Asia. I believe it'll stay in Asia. I don't believe that we're going to see much activity in North America. I may be wrong on that, but I, we, we, for reasons, still don't know why European and Asian viruses haven't readily crossed into North American or American birds in the past. So we don't know what will happen. But the key fact is that this is not the big problem, nor is this the big problem. These are those same cases detailed by year. Note the blue is the percent that have died of all the cases, pretty dramatic in 2006. When this first emerged, again, after its 1997 flame up in Hong Kong, it emerged in Vietnam in the end of 2003, December of that year, then into January and February of 2004. Then we saw it in other areas of Asia in the fall of 2004, again, November, December. Vietnam really was hit hard. And then basically it went into a little longer time period into 2005. And what's happened is each successive year, the peaks have remained in November, December, January, and February. They've just gotten wider and wider by months, and they've gotten higher and higher and higher such that if I were to ask to come back here in March, I will predict to you that this 2006 number will be substantially higher as we're now beginning to see cases coming in from parts of Asia that is hitting that now high-risk time period for this virus. This still isn't the problem. This is the tip of the iceberg. Anybody who thinks 250 cases of anything in the world defines a public health crisis, it doesn't. What this really is telling us, I believe, is the big piece of the iceberg underneath these cases, which is all about the birds. We now have widespread infection in birds throughout all of Asia. We now know that aquatic birds like mallard ducks can shed this virus for weeks and not die. And instead of shedding it out the south side, they're shedding it out the north side. And in volumes we had never seen before. We now know that domestic poultry, which in Asia is key, and also domestic ducks and, and geese are playing a more increasing role every day. And people think, well, we've got it taken care of. Vietnam has been a model for the last 12 months. Everyone's been talking, look what Vietnam did. They did this extensive vaccination program. They've been working hard. And unfortunately, in the last 10 days, there's been two different FAO teams dispatched to Vietnam. It looks like we're getting big flare-ups now in the rural areas of the virus again in poultry. We didn't get rid of it at all. It's the tip of the iceberg. And underneath that iceberg is a poultry world that is a genetic roulette table. This is a cartoon from my New England Journal paper last year, only pointing out that when this virus infects a human today, it's a very different virus than we see with seasonal flu. It infects more cell types, not just the, the respiratory tract, but also the GI tract, other organs, even the brain, and it grows to much higher levels. This then sets off this cascade of events. So we can't compare treatment, we can't compare even drug use, antiviral drugs, I believe, from H3N2 to this new situation. Now, what's the potential for H5N1 to result in pandemic influenza? Well, I didn't have time today, nor would you want to see all the genetic trees of the virus genetics as such. But the bottom line is, is that in a number of studies that have been done, it is remarkable how absolutely unique and how close the H5N1 and H1N1 are in terms of all the history of influenza viruses we've ever seen. And of course, this is modern history view of the last 60 years. The point being is that there's a reason to be concerned about this because these two are really different and they're alike. And in fact, one of the concerns we have is the changes that brought us the 1918 virus appear to be occurring also in the H5N1 where these mutations a bit at a time are occurring. As I pointed out, it has an ongoing genetic roulette table for which to achieve human-to-human -human transmission. I'll come back to that in a minute. And it also never fails in a talk like this. It typically is an older senior infectious disease specialist who gets up and wanting to be a calming voice in the crowd says, well, Dr. Osterholm, you know, if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. Well, this is where one of our humility moments come in. This is what we don't understand about influenza. In the early 1960s, H3N8, which is a bird virus, jumped to horses. Anybody in this room who's an equine lover knows we vaccinate our horses today for influenza, and H3N8 is one of the big problems. It was essentially a bird virus that stayed a bird virus, but it's in horses. For reasons we don't have a clue, three years ago, that virus jumped from horses to dogs. And today, we now have a very rapidly worldwide epidemic emerging of H3N8 in dogs via horses, a bird virus. Why did it take that long to finally jump to dogs? If you were in 
Central Florida this summer, you knew it, we lost dogs all over the Orlando Ocala area from this virus. Anybody who can tell us what went on here can then help us understand what might be the potential for H5N1. It might not do it this year, it might not do it next year, it might not do it the year after, but I wouldn't want to count this virus out. This is the example I gave you about uh, the genetic roulette table. In 1968, there were 790 million people in China, today 1.3 billion. In 1968, FAO estimates are there were about 5 million pigs harvested today, about 5.8 million annually. Poultry, 12 million in 1968, today about 15 billion. With the social, cultural, and political changes in China, we've seen a remarkable change in agriculture. What hasn't been seen is the big agro farm. These are largely animals living in the backyards of millions and millions and millions of people and living in close proximity. And this is true throughout all of Asia. Again, the protein needs of this burgeoning world population are being met largely by birds. So when will it happen? No one can predict if, when, or where H5N1 virus will shift from an avian strain with incidental human infections to a genetically competent human-to-human -human transmitted agent. I don't want anybody to leave here today that said Osterholm said it's going to happen. I don't know. Professor Tate Cornell, I'm, I'm with you. Don't state what you can. But let me say, Asia remains the genetic roulette table for H5N1 mutations. Man, that thing's got a forest that every day has old growth forest by the end of the day and every night burns down and by the next morning it's got old growth forest again. Every day birds are being replaced over there. First evidence of a pandemic we sustained third generation cases. We haven't seen that yet, but I don't know when it's going to happen, if it is. With all the science training I have, with all the papers I've written with relative risks and statistical evaluation, I'm reduced to telling you I wouldn't want to bet my family's life on H5N1 not becoming the next pandemic influenza strain. So what will happen? If we assume the next pandemic will be caused by H5N1, or for that matter, any of them, but uh, in particular, we estimate anywhere from 30 to 60 percent of the world's population will be infected. 30 is typically the planning number everybody uses, the low side. We have this need to reassure people that it won't be as bad as it could be. I think that's a mistake some days because then when it is worse than that, people don't believe us. On the other hand, you can say we're scaring him, but at least it's given him the real world view. If it's a 1968-like panic the pandemic, it's 2 to 7.5 million deaths. If it's a 1918-like pandemic, we're talking about 180 to 360 million deaths. As someone who's been very involved with HIV/AIDS since 1981, I can tell you, I say this with real pain: only 24 million people have died from HIV/AIDS over the past 30 years. This is a number we're talking about in 12 months. That is a stark reminder of what this means. Now, if it's the current case fatality rate, it's 1.6 billion deaths. Again, I don't believe that it will sustain that, even if it starts out that way. I think that you'll see some attenuation, but I'm flying by the seat of my pants, as is every other expert. But we have continued to see this virus change genetically with the potential for sustained transmission and not lose its virulence or its ability to do what it's doing. The H5N1, which I should have mentioned, is killing people exactly the same way the 1918 virus is killing them. Now from Vietnam and China show clearly that it's a cytokine storm. It's exactly that same mechanism. In animal model studies, the 1918 virus and H5N1 are kissing cousins. Now what will happen? These are the estimates from the Department of Health and Human Services. If you look at illnesses, 30% of the population, outpatient medical care, 50% of the population seeking it. It gets interesting when you get to hospitalizations. Now, we all know we have a health care crisis in this country right now anyway, or a disease care crisis, and Alan alluded to that earlier. It's a situation where our hospitals have been gnawed down to the bone and we're sucking calcium. A report was issued last month by the National Academy of Science Institute of Medicine showing that last year we had over 555,000 individuals diverted from the nearest emergency room on, a, on a, an emergency response because the emergency room was so filled that they were on an official status that allowed them to tell them our doors are locked, you have a greater chance of dying coming here because we can't care for you than going another 20 miles to another emergency room. We are in trouble. But if you look at ICU care, mechanical ventilation, etc., that's not the half of it. Let's just take mechanical ventilation. Right after 9-11, when Secretary Thompson asked me to come and assist him, with some of the nation's preparedness issues around uh, another terrorist attack, one of the first jobs I had was to go out and figure out how many mechanical ventilators we had in this country, because nobody had ever done that before. And if we had a botulism attack, that would be the one thing we'd need to have to keep people alive if they had become intoxicated with the botulism toxin. So we went and did an entire national survey and found out we only have about 105,000 mechanical ventilators in this country. On any given day, 70 to 80,000 are in use, and during flu season, we get right up to 100,000. 
In Minneapolis, St. Paul, if we need more than 10 mechanical ventilators, we got to hope that uh, Chicago and Milwaukee will share a couple with us. But I'm not sure I worry about mechanical ventilators. Because one of the things we heard loud and clear in our February meeting in Minnesota was every one of the oil refinery and exploration companies were there, every one of them, senior leaders. Every one of them said, if we lose 30% of our workers, we can't run refineries. Because we have just not only a just-in-time delivery system, we have just enough employee system. We can't safely run them. We'll have to shut them down. If you know anything about oxygen, you know oxygen is a downhill product of the petrochemical industry. Today, I would bet you if we went over to the hospital here, there is no more than three days of oxygen on hand. Oxygen has become a just-in-time delivery product in this country, just like chlorine and a lot of other chemicals. I think we might run out of oxygen before we run out of mechanical ventilators, but we will run out. Deaths. I'll come back to that in a moment, but 1.9 million deaths in this country. Think of that in terms of any nuclear ice going off or any bioterrorism event, etc. Again, and we're not talking about the very old and the very young, if this is a 1918-like experience with this H5N1. We're talking about the very heart of our working population of this country. Now, I published an article in uh, Foreign Affairs. I was asked to write an article a year and a half ago, which actually was a piece for me that was somewhat cathartic. It was also a lifesaver for me because I realized I had never done my senior paper in college in the politics side. I'd gotten in the biology side, and I was always reminded of that, so I now officially got my major out of political science undergraduate. But I laid out in this paper a vision of if, it's, if it happens tonight, what can we do or should we do? But if it's a year off, what can we do? If it's five years off, what can we do? And unfortunately, I'm sorry to tell you that the editors of Foreign Affairs have asked me to do an update in the, coming out in the February issue. And I've gone back and done an assessment of what's been accomplished the last year, and not much. Not much. And it's not been a partisan issue. It's been almost an issue of pandemic fatigue. It hasn't happened. It's gone away. When an, hopefully a nonpartisan statement, last Friday night, President Clinton, speaking in an audience of 5,000 people in Canada, talked about how the world can come together and what they can do. And President Clinton, I think, is one of the heroes today in the infectious disease world. And he said quite clearly, and we actually have the quote on tape, thank God we came together around that avian influenza issue. We stopped it. Instead of having thousands and thousands of deaths, we've taken care of it now. If he believes that, what other world leaders believe it? And unfortunately, most do, because it's not been in the media. So let me just begin to wrap up here and talk about, so how can we respond to this influenza pandemic? Well, there's prevention, patient treatment, populations, medical system response, and non-pharmaceutical interventions. The current influenza technology we use is basically 1950s technology. It's the same technology I use with my slide rule calculator in high school chemistry, with one exception, where we've improved the ability to make it. It still takes basically six months from the time we inoculate those chicken eggs, which is a crapshoot at best of how it's going to turn out, to the time we have vaccine. We still need to have the strain of the virus that's causing the pandemic or the seasonal flu to start. You can't start in advance. The world capacity to manufacture vaccines is extremely limited. 300 million 15 microgram doses. That's the current seasonal flu vaccine dose. That's the whole world. If you take all the pipes, all the plumbing, all the buildings, we can make 300 million doses a year. We're nibbling at the edges on this. That's it. And nobody's going to invest in any more production right now that's not already built, because who would go and be convinced to invest in 8-track tape factories when you're investing in flash drive factories? This is old technology. Nobody's investing in it. So we have a very limited ability. We won't have vaccine. We have many, many fundamental questions remaining underlying the development of an effective vaccine, as the WHO so well articulated. It will likely require a pandemic strain for optimal or minimum protection, which then means, again, six months. Even if we can get a cell culture vaccine, which is one that's years off from being approved in production capacity, it still takes five months, roughly, to get it in and get it out. We have many years off in terms of a modern vaccine. If we crash this today, which we're not, by the way, we're incrementally trying to scale it, if we crashed it today, by the time it would take to get phase one, three trials done, licensing, product capacity, distribution. I mean, just something as simple as if we had the vaccine today, we don't have any syringes and needles. Syringes and needles in this world are a just-in-time delivery product. It would, by the two companies that make most of them, they estimate it would take them two years to gear up just to begin to make the needles and syringes we'd need to deliver the vaccine. The critical need for transforming human vaccines is obvious. We need to get to a vaccine that we can give years in advance. And we have nobody 
at any level, international, national, or even regional, saying that message. My God, we need another May 23rd, 1961 quote from some great president to tell us, we can do it, it's tough, but we can do it, let's do it. We have no vision of that yet at all. Antiviral treatments also complicated. H5N1 and 1918 H1N1 are different infections than that caused by the current seasonal flu. All of our data and how that virus antiviral works is based on the current flu virus. We know now, as I pointed out, it's different. We're relying on a very limited range of therapeutic and prophylactic activity. We're worried about drug resistance, which will occur quickly. And the quest for new drugs is still going to be years off before we actually have one delivered and in a volume that would be meaningful. We have a critical pipeline problem now, but it's getting better. Roche Pharmaceuticals, the sub-licensee for this drug, Tamiflu, has now gotten through some of the production capacity issues, and they're making more of it. But the problem is, this is where we get into the ethical issues. I know this is a very unpopular statement, but I believe it has to be, uh, the boil has to be pricked now. All the data I have seen, as many of us have, suggests that there may be limited, if any, benefit from treating seriously ill H5N1 infected patients with Tamiflu. They're not getting better. And there's reasons to think why that might be the case. For example, it's a GI-absorbed drug, and yet the GI tract is one of the first organs affected. Well, on the other hand, we have data that says, you know what? If you give it to healthy healthcare workers, it might work. Why? Because our animal studies show if you basically have that rod in the reaction the first second you're exposed, as opposed to trying to put one rod in the reaction two days later, you may pre prevent an abort infection. Can you imagine the public outcry if we're trying to keep critical infrastructure like police, fire, healthcare workers, garbage collectors alive, moving and going to work because they don't have vaccine, but now we give them a drug, but we're not treating the people who are dying? Yet biologically, I think that the potential to save many, many more lives and keep society going is with the other. Very controversial, we need to broach it. In terms of the issue of worker and patient protection, we talked about this earlier in our session, uh, we won't have any masks and respirators. Why? Because the primary companies that make these aren't building great surge capacity, very limited increase in surge capacity because they see one-time buys. We have an economic model now that doesn't work for surge capacity. As I mentioned in my talk earlier, North, Northrop Grumman builds a plane for the federal government and delivers 350 of those, and there's others in the room that know a lot more about this than me. We should expect a quote-unquote $250 toilet seat because they amortize the entire cost of building the plant, of bringing the plant down, of having a supply of parts ongoing with those 200 or 350 planes. When we say today to a company, we want you to make millions and millions and maybe billions of respirator masks, these things, but we, we're only buying for a year or two. They say, wait a minute, I've got to build a plant that's got to have a 20-year financial outlay on it. I'm not going to build them. This is true for every piece of the surge capacity we've seen. We've seen no increase in surge capacity because companies don't see the long-term proposition. So will healthcare workers come to work when we run out of respirators, which will run out in the first week? In Toronto, we saw healthcare workers by the eighth week of that pandemic afraid to come to work. It's SARS, uh, that epidemic there. Medical devices and therapy, I already talked about pharmaceutical drugs. I worry desperately that some of the worst collateral damage is going to occur when people die because they can't get their life-saving drug that they count on every day today. We haven't done anything to really secure those supply chains. Nothing. And today we have drug shortages all the time. Go to the Society for Healthcare Pharmacists website right now, and when I last checked about a month ago, there were 42 drugs in this country that were not even out available or on short supply because one factory somewhere in the world that made it had a problem. Again, if that happens during the good times, imagine what's going to happen during the bad. Corpse management. This is an area that none of us want to talk about, but it's critical. I can tell you right now that this may be the key factor of how we will tip as a world. What I mean by that? During Katrina, we saw a lot of pain and suffering, but we actually objective data now that shows this, and clearly with the tsunami there were data that showed this. It was when we mishandled, we were disrespectful to the dead, that people felt we were out of control. That woman who laid face down in the water with a black magic number across her back with her wrist tied to a pole floating in the water showing time and time again on television incited people's anger. The man slumped in the wheelchair for days at the Superdome incited people's anger. When the Indonesian authorities thinking that miasma, the smell which caused death of all the bodies laying on the beach with the tsunami took a front end loader and started piling bodies up in 30-foot piles. 
thinking they were getting them off the beach. When family members had to go through those piles to find their loved ones, that's what took them over the edge. Today, we have a limited funeral service capacity in this country as most of the developed world. In 1968, the last pandemic, the average time of a casket being made till it went in the ground was six months. Today, it's about four weeks. An increasing number of our caskets are being made in China, and many of the parts are coming from China. I just met with the National Casket Manufacturers Association. We'll run out of caskets overnight. But that's not so bad. We use crematorium space, right? No, it's just in time delivery. Again, we don't have plans for how we're going to handle our dead. And that will be a tipping point. I believe that to be so. Implications of global just-in-time economy. Again, food today. I deal a lot in the area of foodborne disease. I can tell you our food is a just-in-time delivery system, and it comes from around the world. Even during Katrina, we learned that. When FEMA, trying to rescue itself and the local area down there, put a call out and said, anybody in the United States who has a refrigerated truck, you come and sit down in one or two locations in the southeast, and we'll pay you just to sit there. Only a limited number of truckers came. And nonetheless, within three days, we had major food companies in this country that couldn't ship food. They had no trucks. They've outsourced all their trucking today as a cost containment issue, and trucking today is razor thin. I could go through all of these in the same vein, petroleum, etc electrical grid systems, everybody said the same thing. And today you heard very compelling reasons why domestic international security is important. I mean, I was moved by the morning sessions. You overlay this on that situation and what will it do? Chaos, confusion, opportunity, what will happen? I don't have a clue. I'm sure there are probably those in the room who'd have a better sense than I. Non-pharmaceutical interventions, quarantine and border closings won't work, even though we're going to do it. I was in Europe this summer when the Romanian government, when they found H5N1 in the Market Square in Bucharest, put barbed wire fences around 12 square blocks of downtown Bucharest and basically machine gun guards all along that. And it took six days to convince the Romanians that that was not what they needed to do. We will do this, even though it will make no difference. You're infectious with influenza virus before you ever get sick. Infection control, I've already mentioned, is a problem. Social distancing, we know today aerosols transmit this. I'm sorry, but all those in the back of the room, I nailed you about 20 minutes ago. Um, this is going to be compelling when it happens. School and other institutional cloning. Stanford will never close. I will tell you that now, because you won't have a chance. Because every parent, every loved one will take their kids out of here before you have an opportunity to close. My concern is how do you reopen? How do you get people? When do they come back? Why do they come back? How do they come back? And I've been on that side of meningitis outbreaks and so forth where that was the big problem. Finally, the only thing we've found that really works is protective sequestration. In 1918, communities like Gunnison, Colorado, took armed guards and put them around their little town for literally six months. Nobody came in and nobody came out. That worked where you were self-sustent with your own food source, everything you needed. Today, we, don't, we can't do that anywhere. I don't believe it will work. Who's going to fare the best probably is the developing world countries. The developing world countries are going to actually have the least impact during a pandemic because they're used to working with nothing. They're used to surviving on nothing. They're not expecting anything. They will probably do the best. So in conclusion, let me just say, imagine a 12 to 18-month global blizzard. When you're in Minnesota, you know a blizzard for a couple of days shuts everything down, but you get back. Now do that for 12 to 18 months. Mandatory voluntary closings of national, state, and even local borders will occur, despite people like me saying it's not going to make a difference. Keep everything moving the best we can. Transmission of influence is going to occur no matter what. Public panic and 24-7 media coverage. The media today is one of the least prepared of all the institutions out there to deal with this. In our summit we had last February, the only two sectors out of 23 business sectors that didn't show up were the airlines industry, which everyone said if it happens to them, they're so screwed it doesn't matter. And the second one was the news media, who basically didn't care. They have no preparatory plans in any of the major media venues, any of the companies in the world right now, and we have just checked on that. Economic models have been largely simplistic to date. Everybody's playing this like a basketball game, one play up and down the floor. You've got to be playing this like a chess master, eight moves down the board every time. If, in fact, we can't make petroleum-based products, what are the implications down the road? If electricity goes out, what are the implications down the road? Governments will have limited resources. I've mentioned that. Up to 20 to 30 percent of workers will be out at any time due to illness or other ill family members. I believe the panic and fear in of itself will drive it. They'll be looking for critical messages. Even under the worst case scenarios, we're going to survive a pandemic. We're going to get through it. Just as we will a terrorist event or another war, the question is how we get out the other side. What can we do? Like politics, pandemic response will be largely local. It's going to be local leadership. 
leadership that works 12 to 18 months. You know, I say this at the risk of alienating a few of you in the room, but I believe while Rudy Giuliani got great credit for the post-9-11 leadership he demonstrated, that was not easy leadership, but it was convenient leadership. And what I mean by that is it lasted for basically a day, and then there was some anthrax thrown in, but we went into recovery. Ray Nagin will go for 12 weeks with a constant attack every day. And I often wonder if you substituted Ray Nagin and Rudy Giuliani, what would have been ultimately the outcomes of both, where one went into recovery right away and the other one continued to have disaster occur day after day. We're going to need leadership that gets us through 12 to 18 months. And when I saw these gentlemen up here this morning, I've got to tell you, that's the leadership I'm talking about. Wise people who can rally a population for months at a time, not soundbite people on TV. Importance of community leadership is going to be critical. I won't have time to get into family preparedness, but you need to start thinking about that. I'll show you in a minute where you get there. All these issues I've talked about, religious, etc., business continuity. So what do we do? It's not a matter of if, just when and where. At a minimum, assume we'll not have vaccine for the first six months, and then supplies will be extremely limited for the duration. Even if a 1918-like scenario unfolds, 98 out of every 100 will still be around and alive at the end of the pandemic. The real question is going to be how to minimize pain and suffering. And finally, last but not least, and this is where many of you in this room play a key role, community planning is not an option. What are you doing here? What are you doing where you live? And that is what is all about preparing for a pandemic. And if you want more information, the site, our website is updated daily and keeps you current. There's a lot of business issues in there, school issues, et cetera. Thank you very much. I guess we have five minutes for questions, answers, comments, etc. Any solutions will be welcomed at the front end. Questions? Yes, sir. I'll repeat the question. Right. Yeah. Uh, the question is, um, and in your, thank, thank you, by the way, for your wonderful presentation this morning. It was one of the, I took some notes, real notes. Um, the issue is, could we make this situation even worse by man getting involved? And ironically, I don't think this will be a situation that will be get worse by intent. I think it will get worse by apathy. The, it's, if we knew how to make the next pandemic strain, you'd be way ahead of anybody else out there. I mean, we couldn't do it if we tried right now. We don't know what it takes to make this. We know kind of what the changes are that looks like it could become a human-human transmitted agent. But I think right now, you know, David Roman is here, one of the premier infectious disease guys in the world who can move things around better than anybody. And if I gave David the challenge of a billion dollars if he could make me a human-to-human a -human transmitted H5N1, I think he'd lose. Okay, so I don't worry like I do other agents like anthrax, smallpox, et cetera, that could clearly be a situation. What I worry about, where I think humans are doing this an injustice, is we're waiting until the levees break until we decide to respond. You know, in New Orleans, I won't name the hospital by name, but I mean, come on. Who was thinking in the emergency response team for that hospital and they put all their generators in the basement 12 feet below sea level? I mean, you know, you got to think that somebody would have thought about that. It's that kind of non-intent that is the concern I have. And I think as long as we keep in that mode, it's comfortable, it's safe, and guys like me can go out there and just, you know, seem to be nuts. But that's where it's at. Yes, sir. Can you summarize the plans for the University of Minnesota? Um, they are basically, we will shut down very quickly, not even by decision, but by people and scared. What we're really working on right now is how are we going to handle, we have the single largest population of, of foreign students from Asia in the country at the University of Minnesota. 
And we've got lots of foreign students, plus we have a very large program. I don't know if you know this, but we today, I think, are the number two or the number one largest campus in the United States, single campus. We have 68,000 students. And basically, we have a situation where, in fact, we are worried about how we do that, but we're going to shut down. That's what I was saying. The other problem we have, though, is like many institutions, we have employees who are professors who are working on basically projects that if science projects, experiments, that if they were shut down, you know, would be terribly, terribly interest. We have patients take care. We have a university hospital, I mean, right there in the middle of our campus. And so we're working on those kinds of issues now. We're also trying to figure out how to keep what infrastructure is there. The key thing is us is bringing it back. In, in 19, uh, few, several years ago, I'll just say, we had a very large outbreak of meningitis in Minnesota high school. And it turned out that the meningitis bacteria is actually transmitted via saliva. And we knew how these 10 kids got it, including the ones that died. They all basically hit off the same bomb at a party two weeks before. But we couldn't say that publicly. But we could tell people we knew how, in fact, they had communicated this bacteria. Despite that fact, and the fact that swapping spit, as we would tell the kids, because that's what they understood, was the single largest risk factor. Over 50% of the parents kept their kids out of school the next three days. We wanted them in school to control them. Instead, we have pictures of 14 girls sitting at the McDonald's the next day at the shopping mall, all sharing the same glass of soda. You know, and so what people will intuitively do, what you want them to do, maybe two different things. So I think Stanford's is, how do you reopen? How do you get back? And that's what's going to be key. Thank you again for the opportunity. I appreciate it very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.